Good morning. You know, um, since I came back from, from uh, Maui, it's been unusual because that first Wednesday back, I went to the uh, farmer's market, and I get, cannot believe the last two weeks just how incredibly uh, awesome God has been. I have had so many opportunities to talk to people about Jesus, pray with people to accept Jesus, and it is the most incredible thing to watch people uh, respond and ask Jesus to come into their heart. You know, you can hear about Jesus, you can feel God's love, but unless you sign on the dotted line, unless you make it personal, that born-again experience doesn't happen. And um, there was this one lady uh, two weeks ago, I, I cannot believe her face. She said she had never heard about Jesus before. She had three small children with her. And um, as I shared with her about Jesus, you know, sometimes you're sharing with people about accepting the Lord and you're wondering, are they going to want to sign on the dotted line? Are they going to want to pray that prayer where they receive Jesus? And she had this blank look, and she goes, and I asked her, well, do you want to ask Jesus right now to come into your heart? Do you want to uh, accept what he did for you on the cross, forgiving you of all your sin and allowing you to be born again? And she said, yes. And so I, I said, well, repeat after me. And I just simply said, Lord Jesus, I know you died for my sins, and I receive what you did for me on the cross almost 2,000 years ago. And I believe that you are going to make my spirit alive and, and you're going to uh, just reassure me that I have eternal life and I have a home in heaven. And she prayed that prayer. When I looked at her eyes, I saw the light come on. I saw Jesus come up in her face. And I said, do you, do you know, do you feel the difference? She goes, yes. It is the most profound thing. You know, everything that we're going through, we're here for a short time. Our last enemy that we're going to face is death. And then at that most crucial moment when we are struggling for our life, however it comes down the line, in that moment where we feel overwhelmed, we're afraid of death, in that moment, the last enemy is destroyed. And we move into the kingdom of God. We move into eternity. We move into heaven. We move into life that it was not even, could not even be imagined how great it's going to be. Last week, we were talking in John 6. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the substance of life that is going to satisfy you like nothing else is going to satisfy you. I am the bread of life. Remember, he was relating to how natural food and the children of Israel got the manna from God. That Moses, because of his leadership and and the people were hungry and then their desert, that God provided manna for them. But Jesus was saying there's greater bread. There's a greater need that must be satisfied. And that need is your spirit to be connected with the living God. That you would receive life in your spirit and you would be energized about whatever you do. And that even your problems would be challenges of hope because you know Jesus Christ is the living God and he comes to live with inside of you and he empowers you in such a way that you can get through whatever life throws at you. But we can either be negative and just feel all the things that are negative or we can just flip on that positive side because we have Jesus Christ and to begin to look at our problems differently. There's two verses I want to just review and I just love how the Amplified. In my reading this year, I switched over. I'm reading the Bible through in the Amplified and it is Amplified. I love some of the key words. The first verse is John 6, 39. Jesus said, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose any of all that he has given me, but, uh, but that I should give new life and raise them all up at the last day. Isn't it nice to know that God has entrusted Jesus with us? That we are in someone's hands who is capable, who can take care of our lives, and we can trust, especially in the world where you have 
any kind of relationship with people very long and you realize their instability, their unfaithfulness, their incapability, no matter what they say, of really uh, taking care of us. I tell you, Jesus comes today to blow away your past and blow away those images of people who have been unfaithful to you. God wants to show himself to you as one who is very stable and very strong and with you. Here's my second verse, again, from last week, John 6, 44. Jesus said, No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me attracts, draws him, and gives him the desire to come to me. And then I will raise him up from the dead at the last day. I shared with this little story with a few people this week, but bear with me again, those who have already heard it been reading again reading just some of the stories I've, I've heard before but i'm reading this new book and it's just talking about people who came to god in wartime and i was particularly reading the story of uh, mitsu uh, fushada and he was the chief pilot who flew the the raid that uh, bombed pearl harbor he was he was the main pilot of pilots and he was a very proud man. He was a Shinto uh, religion of the state. And he was a diehard leader. And he was the first one over the target to bomb. And he was the last one after two and a half hours of bombing that left the Pearl Harbor. And he came away very satisfied that they had done this attack and they were victorious. A great pride rose up in his heart and he rose to all kinds of acclaim and of fame. The emperor honored him and he was just, man, he was on top of the world. He uh, continued to encourage pilots and, um, you know, just be that person to be the example. He was so proud that it says he, he, his mentor, or the one he looked, for, looked up to was Hitler. And he grew himself even a little Hitler mustache and the people called him Little Hitler. During the course of the war, he was shot down uh, over, uh, over Borneo and he crashed in the jungle and his radio operator died. But he walked out of that unscathed. During uh, a major battle in, um, at the, in the change, when the war started changing at Midway, um, he had been in surgery uh, for his appendicitis. And down in sickbay, he was just so irritated that he couldn't be up with his men and flying on the missions. And so he got himself up out of a sick bay, even under the, uh, the advice of his doctors just to stay in bed. And he went to the surface and he just began to encourage the pilots. Well, right then, uh, the Americans had decoded uh, the code, the Japanese code, and they be- began to bomb. Uh, and so the aircraft carrier he was on was bombed. In fact, if he'd have stayed in sick bay, he would have got killed with the 33 people who were there because it got a direct hit. And so when the bomb blew up, he got bounced off the carrier like 10 feet in the air and he came down and broke both his legs. Two seamen threw him in a, a net and threw him in a boat and cast him out. So he comes back to his country and he recuperates and he's training pilots and uh, he's got all this notoriety going on and, um, and, and things are just happening in the war and he is just, you know, really just encouraging people and rising in his ranks. And then he, he goes, he has a, has a meeting in Hiroshima towards the end of the war and the day he flies in, has a meeting, and all of a sudden they want him to go and he flies out. And the very next day, they drop the atomic bomb. Uh, within two weeks, he is sent with 70 other men to go in. And they just have their uniforms on. And they're, they're going in to just see what, what happened in Hiroshima. What was, the, what was this devastating bomb? And no one knew about uh, radiation. Within two weeks, every person, almost every person except him, died from radiation poisoning. And yet he was unscathed, unaffected by the radiation. At the end of the war, he's, um, 
on the Missouri as the emperor signs the, the surrender of Japan. And here he is, starts the war, and he's on the Missouri as the surrender is being signed. And he's really in his head, what is going on? The ship I was on was destroyed. The, the power, the glory that I was seeing as our nation was rising in victory over the United States. And yet we're, we're, we're now humbly signing a defeat. And what, what was all this going on? He begins to think, what is going on with the world? And, and he was disillusioned with his religion. He was disillusioned with what he was seeing that was going on in life. And he was struggling with thinking like, is this human nature? Uh, what, is, what is this all about? And he said, you know, we really, he wrote a book after Pearl Harbor and he, he was asking, what is this life going to be all about? You know, what, what, is, what is the thing? His exact quote was, um, who can change people? Who can change the human nature? And that was his question that was going on in his life. And then he began to hear some stories. He heard of, of a lady whose parents were uh, missionaries in, in China when the Japanese had taken over, and his, his, her parents were, were killed. And she was reaching out to American, in America to Japanese prisoners of war who were, who were being taken care of. And then she was over in Japan, you know, sharing the good news, and, and he's starting to get confused. He's thinking, what is wrong with this lady? Here we are. We killed her parents, and she's loving us? She's ministering to our prisoners? What's going on? And he began to be confused. And then he heard about Jacob DeShazer, who was the last person, he was a bombardier in the last plane that took off in the Doolittle raid that bombed Tokyo, the first revenge that America had against Pearl Harbor for, for what the Japanese had done. And so they, they bombed, and, and uh, Jacob DeShazer, he got captured, and him and eight men were horribly uh, tortured for like almost three years in, in the hands of the Japanese. Four of the men were executed. And Jacob wasn't even a Christian in all this time. But through all of the torture, and all that he'd gone through, he began to question about God. And he came to Jesus Christ and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. And almost overnight, he began to forgive those guards and those people who were so hateful to him. And this bitterness that was welled up in his heart and this a desire for revenge that he wanted uh, just seemed to drift away because of the power of God who had just changed his life. So he, he goes back, he goes to Seattle Pacific University, gets a degree, and he goes back for 30 years, him and his wife, become missionaries to Japan. They wanted to bring the love of God to the very people that he had been at war with, the very people that he could have been bitter with. Then um, Mitsu hears the story of Jacob, and he's thinking, what is this? And he gets a track at a Tokyo railway station about Jishazer's life. And he's considered this other woman and he's thinking, what's going on? So he buys himself a Bible and he begins to read. And when he gets into Luke, he reads what Jesus said when he went to the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And at that moment, the love of God broke into Mitsu's heart and he received Jesus. And his whole life began to change. At that time, you know, um, he, he had gotten into just alcoholism and uh, he couldn't smoke enough tobacco and to get the nicotine to try to, you know, just quench all the, the turmoil going on inside. He became unfaithful to his wife and just all the things that were going on. But at that moment, his life was transformed. And, you know, being a, a person who loved flying and everything, he had an opportunity to become the defense minister as Japan was, again, building uh, their nation to have a self-defense, you know, um, 
Air, Air Force. And, but God began to move in his heart. And he decided he would start preaching the gospel of this Jesus. And I think about that scripture, how God has given people to Jesus. He's given the world into Jesus' hands. And Jesus wants to save the world. And people are so important to him. And I, I just want to encourage you that I feel like this is a real season that the people are so ripe around us. I've never felt such a season in my life. I found myself the other day, I was praying for the gardener who was out here doing a special job for someone. And uh, just, I mean, I was, the guy in the back, we were talking again at the RV place. And he, again, talking about the gospel, talking about making a decision for Christ. Uh, you know, not just being a good person, but is Jesus the Lord of your life? Are you in an intimate relationship with him? Not just talking about, I was a, I was a religious person or I had a certain religious growing, religion growing up. But is Jesus real to you? Do you get up in the morning thinking about Jesus? Are you bringing Jesus into your life? by praying and asking him for the things that you're going through? Are you asking Jesus to be part of your will and, and surrendering your, your, the will of your life into Jesus' hands? So, um, well, there's a little story to get going here. Now we're going to start where we're at today. The title of my message is Misunderstanding Jesus. And it's kind of like a you know, towards the end of what we were talking about last week, our, our key scripture last week was John six six six. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. And Jesus was coming to the end of a season of his life. He had done a lot of miracles for three and a half years, but he was starting to move forward into his biggest ministry to pay for our sins. He was going to die on that cross. And so the lines were being drawn and uh, his... His fame was really kind of dwindling, and there were sides being taken. Those who were for Jesus, and those who were against Jesus. And those who were, who were for Jesus really were the silent majority, where they say, yeah, I'm with you, but they weren't really being vocal. They weren't standing up against the religious leaders and saying, no, no, don't you take your, put your hands on this guy. He is the Son of God. Our key verse for today is uh, one of our key verses. I had to add another one. Sorry, Ben. For even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. John 7, 5. Our second verse I really feel is really important. I don't even know if I'm going to get to it today. It's John seven thirty eight and 39. Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those that believe would receive. That Jesus does not leave us alone, but there's an inner river of water, river of life, river of excitement, river of connection with God that will flow out of our heart because we were born again through Jesus Christ, because our spirit has been reactivated, made alive and connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. And our eyes see the world in a different way because of this living water that Jesus is offering. John chapter 7 and John 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Again, God's chosen people, the ones he was sent first to, were rejecting him. They didn't want him. There was opposition also because he had healed a man on the Sabbath day. They were getting caught up in religion. Remember, as we read in John 5, 
This is still carrying over into John 7 where people were offended. The religious leaders were offended because he did a miracle. He restored a man fully to uh, being able to walk and be a functioning person. Matthew Henry wrote this. It is not said that he dared not, but he would not walk in the Jewish, with the Jews. It was not through fear and cowardice that he declined it, but in prudence or discernment because his time had not yet come. Christ will withdraw from those who drive him from them. You know, Jesus, who was wisdom, he used wisdom. I asked my dad this question one time in my early years, you know, when I was trying to figure out this God thing. Like, if you're walking in God's will, uh, why couldn't you just, like, if you had to be in a war, why couldn't you just get up and just go charge the enemy and not get killed? My dad goes, well, that's kind of a little stupid, you know? Well, Jesus is using the same kind of wisdom. Even though he knew they wanted to kill him, he knew he couldn't just make himself vulnerable. That there was a set time, there was a calling on his life, and he had to live out that time and that calling. And if he didn't use wisdom, the enemy would try to take him out in advance. I think that's what happens sometimes to people. That somehow the enemy, because he's a thief and he comes to kill, steal, and destroy, that he tries to take us out before our time. So that's why God calls us to walk in wisdom, to use discernment, how we drive, you know, how we approach life because we live in a dangerous world and we're subject to death because death is a part of this life. Matthew Henry wrote this, In times of imminent peril, it is not only allowable but advisable to withdraw and to choose the service of those places which are least perilous. This was a beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a seven-day event. It kind of celebrated or brought a remembrance to the 40 years the children of Israel had walked in the wilderness and God had provided for them. Uh, much of the teaching and much of the, what was going on in the feast was concerning like the agriculture and how you know, God provided the rain and uh, the different things that went on. In, um, in, in these times of celebrations at the feast, you know, as we read through the gospel, we always recognize that Jesus is somehow showing up during the feast times and he's talking about different things. He's entering right in with the symbolism of what they're doing and how it relates to their natural life, whether it's food, like bread, or now in this part, you're going to see how he's going to be talking about water. Because this festival was at the end of September and uh, at the end, at the beginning of October. And so they had just gone through the dry seasons in, in this season of, of the festival. And in this time, it was not unusual for people to be praying in, as they're you know, doing the, the sacrifices and they're involved with temple worship and all the rituals and things going on. And it's said that oftentimes that the rains would begin in that time and they would be all of a sudden just very grateful to God that here we are celebrating tabernacles, that this feast, and now it's starting to rain. That God was bringing that water of refreshment, which a lot of times they depended on the rain. If it didn't rain, crops wouldn't get the water. There wouldn't be water to, to be built up and to wash and stuff. So it was like a major miracle if it rained during the Feast of Tabernacles. But again, spring was just around the corner and Jesus was going to die. John 7-2. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacle was at hand. And uh, 
Jesus is referred to, you know, his death part is kind of referred to in verses 1, 7, and 19. And Jesus referring to his death and what's going to be coming or going back to heaven. And John 7, 3 through 5, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Some of the commentaries are suggesting that really his brothers wanted him to get out there because him being their brother, they wanted to get some of the uh, benefits from Jesus' growing popularity. Matthew Henry goes on to write this. If the providence of God places persons of merit into places of obscurity and little note, it must not be thought strange. Again, Jesus is using that wisdom. He was not really going for the human popularity that was, you know, they loved him at the beginning when he was going into uh, Bethany and they praised him. Then a week later, they were yelling, crucify him. He knew that people were fickle. He knew that their hearts could change from day to day. Timing in the will of God. I just think as we talk about timing here in a minute, I have to think or get us, let us remind that God has a timing in our life. That if we are uh, believers and if we've committed our life to Christ and not only as Savior, as Ben talked a few weeks ago, but being Lord, that we enter a, a, a divine timeline that God is doing things. And in that timeline, you can't always recognize what God's doing, nor can you always figure out, you know, what's happening. And sometimes we think like even in the will of God, because we don't see things happening, we think almost not being God's will. Sometimes there's an irritation and an agitation about that. In John seven six through 9, then Jesus said to them, my time or my opportunity has not yet come. Again, he's talking to his brothers about, you know, hey, why don't you come up to the feast? Come on, let's go. Let's get some notoriety. But your time is always ready. So what is he saying here? He's saying that as we live our natural life, pretty much we do whatever we want. We make our decisions, and, and a lot of times we don't even include God. And so he was referring to uh, them in, the, in, in this natural world. But because he came from heaven, because he was sent by God to accomplish God's will and purpose, because he himself loved the world in which he was coming to die for, he realized and he knew and he submitted himself to the will of God. That there was a higher plan. There was a plan that may even cost him his very life. But he realized that this plan, this timing, this will was the ultimate way in which to live. The world, in verse 7, cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, and I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Let me ask you a question today. Are you living in God's specific time for your life? Is God at the center of your life? And do you have a reasonable understanding of the will of God for your life so you could say, yeah, I'm living in God's timing for my life? Again, living in the insignificant moments of life in John 7:10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as that were in secret. Matthew Henry wrote this. It was the lot of our master himself. He did not sit still in Galilee, but walked. Again, he did not want to put himself in uh, premature danger of being executed. 
nor was he going to miss the opportunity to reveal himself in the feast, to show himself and to, again, speak truth to people. Because, again, it's his last season at this one place to share before he goes to the cross. He went about doing good, Matthew Henry writes. When we cannot do what we and what and where we would, we must do what and where we can. There's a real buried treasure in our will and how we use our life and how we spend our days can really affect. I can remember even um, oh, one of the weeks we're going to Wednesday and, you know, if we haven't, a couple of times this summer, if we haven't had the, the full manpower for our, our evangelism booth at the fair, we didn't go. Dora goes, well, maybe we need to, to let it go. And I thought to myself, we ain't not letting it go. So I packed everything up and went. It was probably one of my greatest experiences there of people being open to Jesus. And something Kevin said really something really profound the other day when we were there. He says, it's interesting. People will spend all kinds of money here to buy food. But when we were here offering the most important thing, the most important thing, the most important decision people can make is, is making Jesus Christ their Lord, something we offer free. People walk around that booth like it's the plague. Like they're going to get the swine flu if they come near us. <laughs> so we got this little wheel. We got some suckers and some stickers and some, and some rings. And so we lure the kids in. I love moms because they have their kids, but they'll let their kids get something free. So while the kids spin the wheel to get a sucker, we are offering the mom a, a necklace, a, a cross necklace. And then I ask them, I give them a necklace and I go, can I ask you two questions? I notice that you give somebody something, you can ask them anything. I give him this beautiful necklace. I show him it hanging on the, on, the, on the placard there. And then I hand it to him. And they're like, can I ask you two questions? Yeah. Are you going to heaven? Hmm. I hope so. We just simply tell him, do you know that God loved you so much that Jesus came and died on the cross so that someday you could spend eternity in heaven? And he comes in when you ask him to come in and your spirit is made alive. And now the phone line's hooked up between you and God and your heart knows that God hears you and you begin this incredible relationship with him. Saw people uh, this last couple of weeks, this one lady, I was watching her. She had one little kid and I just saw something on her. And I said, I, God, bring her to the booth. She walked by, she left. 10 minutes later, she's coming by. She has another kid with her. I think, okay, she's going to come in. No. She's gone another 20 minutes, comes back. Now her husband and two other kids come in and, and I, she, obviously she didn't speak English because her little girl started interpreting, but she said she was in the Catholic church and she said she knew Jesus Christ was her Lord and she was crying. She said, he's everything to me. And she walked away and I said, well, you just keep talking to Jesus. And she went away and I thought, wow, this is, there's a family that you already are, are on. You're working, you're revealing yourself. I remember, um, you know, I think, again, it seems like we talked about the will of God in our lives and making the Lord our will a few weeks ago. And I feel like it keeps coming up. And sometimes in our, in our society, you know, because life is so messed up and sometimes goal gets so, goals get so shut down and, and messed up and doors get slammed in our face that we, our will kind of goes passive and we're not sure what we should do. We kind of get stuck. We don't know where our heart is. Even as a Christian, we don't know what God's will is. We, we don't know where we're supposed to go. And we, we get stuck. And we just kind of are just floating. And we don't know what to do. 
I remember this story Dick Iverson told us. He, 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 he was the founder of Ministers Fellowship International, which, you know, we're in. But he said this. There was a young person that came to his Bible college, and he started asking him about his life and what had happened. And he said, well, you know, I was, I was a teenager. My home was broken. My father was abusive. My mom wasn't there, and I went out in the streets in my early teens. And I was on drugs and alcohol and doing all kinds of things. And he says, I was in the shower. I was going to take my life. And he heard God say, if you're done with your life, will you give it to me? He accepted Jesus, went into Bible college, and God has just so changed his life and using him in the kingdom of God. Sometimes as Christians, we think that God's will is so boring and we haven't found ourselves, but why not? Where we're at, why don't we surrender and say, you know, whatever my hand finds to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to serve you with all I got until you change direction in my life. I'm going to pour everything I know into you and what I know about you. And then if you want to adjust or change my life, I'm going to do it. I thought that was one of the most profound stories I ever had. I ever heard. If you're done with your life, why don't you let me have it? <laughs> going to kill yourself? Let me have your life now. In Psalms 31, 15, it's, the psalmist talks about time. And the psalmist wrote, my times are in your hand. I want to throw this verse out to you again. We've used it several times in the last few months. It's Matthew 16, 25. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, their true life. Feel like your life's not going anywhere? Feels like kind of boring? Look, I could tell you that. I was a janitor most of my life. Now I feel like I'm having such an exciting time telling people about Jesus, watching people change, watching people make that decision that profoundly changes their life. And if they don't mount to anything in this life, when they die and they enter eternity, life is going to start. Everything that they were ripped out from, everything they lost, maybe they didn't have money, maybe they didn't have a career, maybe they weren't loved. It's like the thief on the cross. He could tell us right now, if, he, if God was allowed him to come back, do a little mission trip, he'd tell us, oh my, I ripped people off, I murdered people, I cheated people, I went to the cross. In fact, when I got on the cross, I was saying, hey, this Jesus, what's wrong with you? You're a fool. But when he got closer to breathing his last breath, he knew, hey, I'm going to die. Hey, Jesus, remember me today when you come into your, into your kingdom. Hey, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. In the middle of the feast, John 7, 11 through 16. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and they said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning Jesus. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives people. Again, the lines are being drawn. People are picking sides. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? I really think, and I really believe, you don't have to, you don't have to spend hours trying to learn everything as much as how much time you're spending with Jesus. I remember in um, Acts 4.13, Peter and John they're arguing it out after they raised the other crippled man who was at the temple. 
And the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, came away realizing they said, these guys have been with Jesus. And so all the theology that the scribes and Pharisees had did not match the personal experience that Peter and John had with the living Jesus and the Holy Spirit who now was on duty since Jesus went back to heaven. I tell you, it's not how much you know, but who do you know? Every person in this building, every child has the opportunity to have all the deep truths that you need to know by simply taking time with Jesus, reading his word, praying, and letting the Holy Spirit fill your heart to overflowing. I tell you, you will open your mouth and you will say profound things at the right moment to the right people that will change their lives and encourage yours. Again, Jesus is at the feast and there's no fear. Even though he had to watch how he was representing you know, himself and how, how he was doing, he was not afraid to be there and speak in the truth and share the gospel. Again, the religious doctrine was not meeting the people's spiritual hunger. Again, the Jews are struggling with who Jesus is in John seven sixteen through 24. If anyone, Jesus says, will, wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. You will know concerning the doctrine. Again, someone can speak preach the gospel, but it is your spirit that tracks with if it's true, if it's hitting home, if it's registering with what God is doing in your life. There are so many voices out there. There are so many people preaching so many things, and, and sometimes deception has such a fine line in it. Sometimes you, you hear people, and you have just like this check in you. Like that's the wisdom and discernment of God. God is watching over truth. The Holy Spirit is the one that is building and so he's watching what kind of uh, theology, what kind of uh, knowledge comes in that's being built on your foundation. Jesus Christ is your architect and your builder. And the Holy Spirit is one that's putting doctrinal foundational stones into your life that he's building an incredible tabernacle, incredible place for him to dwell in and launch from you. He shall know concerning my doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should be, not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You know, even in their... Um, misunderstanding of who Jesus was, he keeps hammering truth. He keeps giving them truth. He keeps highlighting that they're focused on religious things. And they're not looking at who Jesus was, looking at what Jesus did, and looking at the heart of Jesus. Again, connecting them, talking, always talking about the Father, always talking to them about how he comes to represent the Father. In other words, in verse 24, Jesus is saying, look at my fruit. Look at the evidences. 
John 7, 25 through 31. Some believe in Jesus and some doubt. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Again, it seems like they were expecting a miracle Messiah. A miracle Messiah to come out of a place where no one had any history about him, no one knew anything about him, and then all of a sudden they thought they would believe. But really the prophets that they read are the ones that were telling them. Isaiah told them about how the virgin would bring forth a a son and he would be Emmanuel and God would be with him. How he would be called a Nazarene and how he would be born in Bethlehem. They had the nuggets that they were looking for, but they weren't buying in. Why? Because their hearts were closed to the truth. They were rejecting the truth that God was giving them. Their heart, it shows how the heart is so important because it's the avenue of faith. It's the avenue of trust in our relationship with God. This is an incredible part right here in verse 28. Jesus desperately wants them to believe. Again, he's going to go to the cross. Remember last week, all these disciples had just left them because he was talking about they had to partake in his body and his blood. And again, it was over their head. And they went back to their old acquaintances. They went back to the old things they were doing. And I'm thinking Jesus' humanity was maybe wrestling a little bit with what he was seeing. You know, he was all God and all man. Think of it. Can you think of also just the messages he was getting the enemy? You're wasting your life. Look at all those disciples left you. All these people want to kill you. You know, I'm sure the enemy was assaulting his mind, his will, his emotions. Again, he was going to be facing the cross in a few months. He was going to be in that garden facing that decision about going to the cross. Verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour, his time, had not yet come. And many of the people believed him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? Again, you have an incredible element of people who are buying in. This is the Messiah. Who can do more than him? He is. He's the one. That desperate cry, you know, won't you believe in me? You know, I have to consider that, you know, God speaks to us like that. Don't you get it? Don't you know I'm for you? You know, when when you're entertaining those fears and you have those doubts coming against a promise that he's giving you. Dare to keep believing the promise in spite of the opposition. Dare to trust God when everything says don't trust him. He is our rock. He is our savior. He is truth. The religious leaders desire to arrest Jesus. In John seven thirty two to 36 The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I will go to him who sent me. 
interesting. Again, he's talking about, I'm going to go to death. I'm going to face that last enemy, just like you're going to face someday. I'm going to go die. And it's so horrendous when you're looking to it and fearful of it. But that is the last bridge into an incredible life, a life eternal, a life in heaven. Jesus, even though he had to go to the cross, even though he had to die, he was looking one more step ahead. He was looking to return to the Father who he was representing and who loved him with a love that was so great that he would endure the life of sacrifice and suffering that he took on. You will seek me and not find me, and there I am. You cannot come to heaven. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to do, to the disperse to, to disperse disperse sir? <laughs> being dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Look at this. You know, we, we look at everything that happens on our planet. You know, we're investigating the oceans. We, we shot a group, handful of men into space in the 70s. And now everything, the space systems all shut down. And we're all focused on this little planet and what's going on. Jesus comes from heaven. He comes out of eternity. He comes to bring together to us to let us know what's going to be happening after we die. He comes to bring in hope of a life that we can't even, not even imagine now. And he's simply asking us to walk with him and trust him every day of our life. Jesus offers living water. This is the Feast of the Tabernacle. It's the last day of the feast. Each day during the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacle, the priest would go up to the spring at Gilhan, which feeds the Saloma pool, you know, where that man was healed. And the priest goes up to that spring and he gets a, a jar of water and he comes down and he pours it on the altar. On the last day of the feast, he goes up seven times and he gets the water and he comes back and pours it on the altar. And remember, they are being reminded that the children of Israel got water for 40 years by the hand of God. And remember what Corinthians says, that Jesus was that rock that flowed. In that spiritual realm, Jesus was the one that provided the living drinking water for those people over that whole period of the 40 years. We're talking about 3 to 5 million people every day in the desert. And they say you're in the desert, you drink a lot more water. You need a lot more washing. You wash a lot more, wash a lot of dust off your vegetables or whatever you're eating. A lot of water in that manna. You know, when they got those chickens, they washed those chickens. Think of all the water. And this feast was typifying what had happened. And right now, Jesus is using this perfect uh, story, this perfect parable to say, I am the living water. So he cries out, the last day of the feast, John 37 the last day of the great day of the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit of whom those who believe in him would receive. But the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Again, 
all this rituals, all this thing is happening. And Jesus is stopping saying, get it, you guys. I am the living water. I come here today to fill you with the Holy Spirit. I come to fill you with a hope that you will never again be thirsty spiritual. You will never again wonder and doubt about what's going to happen in heaven. But you are going to be able to receive me right now. I reveal myself and you can be changed. No longer you can live under what people didn't do for you or who left you or who forsake you or you know all the things that come to steal our hope or take away our joy or make us feel depressed. But it is the living God, the living Jesus that continually pushes past our negative experiences and tells us, I am there with you. I will fill you up. I will fill your heart with love. You will go through the most negative things, but I will pour myself in continually. And you know, you can get refreshing every day. You can get up in the morning and get refreshed. You know, you could be fighting it out with your husband or wife and your kids could be in disobedience with you and you could be just thinking, oh, what am I going to do? But you can cry out as Jesus cried out, reminded them that he was the living water and you can drink of that living water. You could ask today, you know, we're going to have the, would our worship team come up? We're going to have a time when you could just pray, have people pray with you and let God fill you with his presence. Let God remind you, those of you who maybe have gotten discouraged in your Christian faith, that the living water is the one you began to partake in. And that you could be reminded today that you can drink again. You can drink again and again and again and again. If you have to do it a hundred times a day, you have to go and refresh yourself. Jesus is promising that there's going to be a life force that comes up out of your spirit, out of your heart and brings refreshment to you and brings a confidence in you that God is still on the throne. And if they take away everything that you had, you're still going to be in victory. I finished reading a story about a man who tried to escape during World War II of the, of the Japanese prison camp. And he went through three and a half years of, of building this railway, for, going to India. The Japanese wanted to hook up with the, with the Germans. And how they worked from sunup to sundown. After a short time, they were skin on bone. They had a meager ration of... of of rice, and they were had beriberi, they had dysentery, uh, they had malaria, they had every kind of disease that the, the Japanese prisoners didn't even want to be around them. They were so infectious. But they worked, and this one man came after he'd been there a few years, and he saw the violence and everything, and the torture and the hatred. There's something began to happen in his heart. He began to hear about Jesus because a few of them had New Testaments, and he accepted the Lord. And even though he was facing death, he saw that the love of God began to change his life. He began to be filled with the love of God, and they saw the sacrifice of true Christianity. There was one Christian when he he was this guy was left to be in the morgue. He was dying, and what happened? His friends gathered around, and they began to give up their meager ration of rice. And over a few weeks, this man began to rise up and he restored his health. And one of these Christian guys who was just so demonstrating the love of God and so giving up his life um, actually had done this for another prisoner too. And he eventually died of malnutrition because of his sacrificial love. And he said, something began to change in my life. He said, the guys who were beating me, I began to have a love for. I didn't look at them as my enemy. I didn't look at them as there were, there were some uh, terrible person that I was going to get revenge from. But he was like Jesus. He said, you know what? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. He saw other Christian prisoners go because they did something. Uh, one guy just lost a shovel or something and have him get on his knees. And before he, he died, he said, Lord Jesus, I just thank you. I just thank you, Lord, and I forgive these guys. But I thank you, Lord, that right now I'm getting ready to go into your presence. Even though my life has been, this is all I have and I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of it. Lord Jesus, I'm looking to you. I'm going to go into the kingdom.